Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a physician and a medical director at Allidade. I'm joined today by Travis Broom. Travis is the Vice President of Policy here at Allidade and a former Regional Manager at Medicare. Uh, how are you doing, Travis? I'm doing as well as we can all be doing as we uh, try and deal with today's uh, pandemic. And I know we're both at home, so uh, we may expect some noise from children or, or pets in the background, but, but we'll do what we can here. Absolutely. In the midst of all this, CMS is apparently being pretty flexible to try to let providers respond as needed to this COVID crisis. What are some of the things that have, that have just dropped that providers should know about? So the biggest thing is absolutely the telehealth waiver. Um, and this is basically, you know, we don't certainly don't want well people. And to some extent, we don't even want, um, you know, folks who are symptomatic or um, going into doctor's offices right now. We want to be able to evaluate people um, before they actually step foot in um, a physician's office. And telehealth is a great way to do that. And CMS has basically waived a lot of the restrictions that used to be in place for telehealth, um, most notably, um, anyone anywhere in the country can receive telehealth. Any Medicare beneficiary anywhere in the country can receive telehealth, even if they are just at home. And CMS won't pursue, and HHS more broadly, won't pursue any kind of enforcement if you use consumer technologies, non-public facing consumer technologies like FaceTime or Skype, or you know, we're talking right now on Google Meet, you know, any of those kind of consumer technologies that, that are still private, you know, not public facing, not Facebook Live or anything, um, you can use those without fear of HIPAA enforcement. So those are the, the two big um, things in, in telehealth. And it's been really good to see, you know, here at Allidade, you know, our ACOs, you know, kind of coming together under, you know, as ACOs to figure out kind of common solutions, get all of that information out to our practices, sharing common things about workflow. So it's one thing for the government to allow, right? It's a whole nother thing to implement. And, and the team here at Allidade and, and I'm sure ACOs across the country are really focusing hard on, on making sure these things that the government did to allow actually show up um, in patients and in practices across the country. So in the past, a, a patient had to go to something called an originating site mm -hmm. and the physician had had to apply for a rural waiver to show that there was essentially no way for the patient to get these services uh, in the area where they lived. So both those things are now are now gone. Is that right? Yep, both those things are now gone, as you alluded to. The telehealth use was, before the pandemic, um, restricted to basically rural parts of the country um, where it would be a very an extreme hardship um, to get to a physician's office. Um, now, since it's a you know not a good idea for almost anybody to go to a physician's office unless um, prior to evaluation, um, everyone has that hardship. So. Um, we, we've gotten rid of those restrictions, um, and it's now available across uh, across the country. Um, like I said, to all Medicare beneficiaries, um, there are you know a few things that you know telehealth, like you can't take a blood pressure and things like that. Um, but there's a lot of things that can be done uh, over telehealth, even when the patient is at home. 
and that's what we're hoping that's what we're enabling now um, that it's allowed now one thing i saw about the payment rates for it was that it might be lower payment than physicians are used to getting because it's going to be paid at the facility rate and i found that confusing because generally my interaction with facility fees is that they they tack on almost unnecessary cost why in this case is the facility fee paying less than a provider might expect yeah so everything in the medicare physician fee schedule actually has two prices it's called one's called the non-facility price and one's called the facility price the non-facility price is what doctors you know 90 percent of doctors offices are used to getting and it's basically the cost of having the building the cost of having the staff and all of those things are are wrapped up into what you get paid for a given service then the facility price is really only focused in on physician time or nurse practitioner time physician assistant time whoever you know that billing practitioners time and a much smaller amount of support for them and then when the patient goes in to the facility gets a separate payment um, you know so if it's an outpatient department of a hospital if it's you know some of the other clinics and things that get a separate facility payment you essentially there's two payments the lower facility payment um, as it's called in the physician kind of confusingly um, in the facility you know and then the second payment to the actual facility itself so the doctor is getting paid a little bit less directly because the facility is getting a separate payment. I see. So in this case, it's just the facility payment that is going right. to be received. So, right. Because now, because the patient isn't going into any facility, the, the, there's no separate payment to a facility. And the doc is just getting the lesser kind of payment of just their time, as opposed to what they're used to getting, which is kind of the all-inclusive payment. I see. So that is a little bit of a fly in the ointment. It is a little bit of fly in the ointment. It's one of those things that, you know, it kind of makes perfect sense, right? Like, you know, pre-pandemic, like, you know, um, telehealth, like, literally has a lower cost structure. Like, it just costs less to provide a telehealth visit than it doesn't. Um, but during the pandemic, um, you know, offices are still running, they still have all their staff, you know, converting, they're converting office visits to telehealth visits, not by choice, but by necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and their cost structure is still the same. So one of the things we we started advocating for is um, for CMS to recognize that, and it, and it might take an act of Congress, and it's kind of unknown um, whether CMS could do this on their own or not. But, you know, the combination of the federal government to to recognize that um, in this particular case during this pandemic, um, the cost, if anything, our practices are spending more money on their practices through PPE and all of those things. Um, so what might have made sense back in on January 19th, um, or I guess that's a little late, December 19th, um, doesn't make sense on March 19th. I did see one thing in the regulations. I don't know if um, how how in the details of it you've gotten, which was about the consent procedure mm -hmm. that the patient had to actually sign something saying that they um, that they accepted this form of communication. And I, I picture a sick older person, you know, somebody in their eighties with a fever, who's having to navigate trying to download a 
a consent form from a website or, or deal with it by email or fax and have to send it back to the doctor's office. Um, and that, that not being a great process for somebody who is sick with, with pneumonia living by themselves. Do, do, you any, do you have any understanding of the consent process for telehealth? Uh, yeah, and, and that's actually a really important um, point, I think, of uh, that instantly raises two kind of broader points as well as the consent. One is it's really important to know, understand that just because Medicare says you can doesn't mean your state says you can. Um, and state governs medical licensure and things. So for Medicare and broad of like you can do telehealth um, and right now you could do like an online consent, right? It has to be video. So if it has to be video anyway, like, you know, we can click, do like online consent. Um, you're online anyway. Um, a lot of, some states are starting to relax that kind of written consent rules. But again, it does vary state by state. Um, Kaiser uh, Family Foundation has a good um state by state review of everything, you know, kind of keeping track of everything the states are doing. If you need a reference for what your state is doing. And the other thing to remember too, is that it's not the end all be all um, telehealth. There are other options in Medicare um, that can get you some reimbursement and support your practice with some revenue that aren't actually, you know, telehealth waivers, for instance, um, there's something called a, a virtual check-in for established patients, for your, your current patients. Um, and that just requires a phone call. Now, I mean, it's a phone call and it's priced at a phone call. So back to our earlier conversation, it doesn't pay a whole lot, um, but it does pay $15. It pays something. Um, and, you know, in that case, it's a phone call and obviously um, oral consent to the service. I, you know, basically saying um, the patient consenting kind of at the beginning um, and, is perfectly fine if you document it in your medical record. Um, so while telehealth is the best thing we have to replace an office visit, uh, Medicare does have support for you know telephone telephonic check-ins um, and then even online um, kind of audiovisual um, online check-ins that you know you don't have to meet all of the requirements of the CPT codes. Um, but you can still bill Medicare. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that it's it's not telehealth or nothing. So telehealth is the best replacement for an office visit, but it's not the only support you can get from Medicare for things that you know aren't necessarily office visits. So like I said, th there is Medicare reimbursement for just you know a medical provider, um, nurse practitioner, PA, doctor, talking to the patient on the phone for five to 10 minutes. doesn't pay a lot. Like I said earlier, 15 bucks, but it pays something. Um, and right now I know all of our practices need every bit of revenue they can get. That's a great point that there are other rules currently in place that allow some support during this period of time. I saw one other release yesterday. Uh, I don't know if this one's been finalized yet that Providers can actually now do work in states near them. They don't just have to do it in states where they are licensed. Are you uh, able to speak to that one at all? It was one of those ones I heard, well, about time. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I live right on the DC border, but my license is only in Maryland and I can't see any patients in DC. It's, it's always been goofy. Yeah. So th this is 
Yeah, we saw the Vice President Pence announced that yesterday that HHS would issue a regulation. We haven't actually seen the regulation yet. The other thing to know, though, on that is a lot of states have already done this. Um, for telehealth, Medicare has already waived it for telehealth, um, that they will pay any physician or MP or PA who's credentialed in their home state for providing services in any other state. Um, but again, just like with consent, states are actually far more restrictive in normal circumstances than the federal government when it comes to these things. Um, so, you know, refer to your own states and a lot of states have jumped the line as it were and, and gone, went ahead and waived that themselves. Um, so you can always check on your state, see if you're ready. And then as soon as we get that regulation, um, we'll be able to, to read it and see um, whether it actually supersedes state requirements or not. And by the same token, we've been getting questions here at Allidate about whether Medicaid now will honor uh, telehealth services. And my understanding is that's up to the states, that, that the, the feds are encouraging state Medicaid programs mm -hmm. to allow this, but that it ultimately is the state's call to do so. Is that right? That, that's correct. Um, I know Florida um, made the news for basically being the first state to, to not only say they were going to do it, but implement it. Like the waiver's already done and all the things are in place already in Florida. And I imagine other states will, will, are quickly following suit. Well, this is fantastic, Travis. Uh, really important things for people to know right now. I know that even before this crisis broke, some pretty big new regulations had had come out from CMS uh, regarding patient care. Um, some of them will involve the ACO program. And while we have you here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of those. Can you speak to some of the new regulations that physicians and practices should be aware of? Yeah, um, you're right. You kind of got buried a little bit. Um, you know, there was a lot to do in the health information exchange space um, that came out in all of this. Um, you know, we had admission discharge transfer notification requirements for hospitals. That'll be awesome. Um, then we had two other things that really should open up the door to more health information exchange. One is around, you know, what's called information blocking. And basically this idea that if you use certified electronic health records, which pretty much every healthcare provider does now, um, you need to share information with people who need it to care for those patients and you can't block the sharing of that information, hence information blocking, kind of for business reasons, right? You can, um, you can't do it and there's a, lot, there's a laundry list of reasons that are non-business related that it might not be flowing tomorrow, um, implementation problems being <laughs> the number one, uh, but if you can, it can't be just because of business reasons, just because you don't want to, um, or the other party could you know, basically accuse you of information blocking. So that should open up some doors um, to a broader set of information than just ADT. And then I think the one most people are most excited about is um, the API um, access that EHRs will need to provide um, both to patients and to services that patients elect to participate in, you know, APIs are, you know, how all of the things you you know that interface with each other talk to each other, right? You know, it's how my Apple calendar syncs with my Google calendar and 
um, all of those things. And so now with EHRs basically as part of their certification and as part of being you know, an EHR opening up an API access to a lot of services, um, we should be able to see a, a greater diversity um, and a greater number of offerings available to both healthcare providers and to patients to access clinical information um, when, when it's desired and, and when it's appropriate um, through a very robust um, exchange and a very real time exchange, as opposed to the old, uh, you know, I'll send you my file uh, every night at midnight type thing um, that we used to have. So, you know, I think we're just, that was all about getting that door open. It, it'll be, I think it'll be amazing to see now that that door is open, everything that does proliferate um, and works. And I think you'll see the cream of the ideas rise to the top. Um, but like I said, what we've done today is, is open that door and it'll be really exciting to see um, how the industry goes through and figures out what's really valuable um, to use to use that door and that window into that clinical data. Um, and I'm sure we'll see lots of ideas that, oh, that sounded great on paper, but nobody actually used it, and those will fade away, <laughs> right? You know, as you're describing these changes, I'm sort of shaking my head. I'm, you know, I'm both optimistic that these are really some great changes that have taken place, but also just thinking, my goodness, we had a healthcare system that even as of a week or two ago, hospitals didn't have to let doctors know their patients were discharged. Uh, sick people still had to drag themselves to the office, couldn't be seen by video. Um, you know, a doctor in a crisis couldn't treat a patient who lived on their state line. Um, you know, the systems were not interoperable. You know, you know my goodness, what a, what a system we've been working in. Yeah, I know. It, it was uh, put up, it was quite shocking that, or not shocking, I mean, I knew it, but, you know, in retrospect, of like, of course, telehealth waiver, like, should have been part of any national emergency declaration, right? The fact that Congress had to do it special for this one was like, oh, wish we had thought of that before, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, uh, we got to focus on making, uh, you know, tomorrow better than today. And, and I think everybody's really um, doing that in a big way. And I've been really, really proud of the way Allidaid stepped up and then seeing some of our fellow ACOs as well. I think having, you know, thinking of things we did do, right, before this all started was, you know, closing in on nine years ago now, you know, came up with this idea that population health and primary care should be combined um, in under this umbrella we call the ACO. And those are now mature structures that I think are serving us really, really well um, in this pandemic. Well, Travis Broom, Vice President of Policy at Allidade, uh, this is a, a scary time, but I know we're all going to get through it. And I really appreciate your, your sharing your expertise on ways that the healthcare system is going to come through this actually better set up to provide good patient care. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh.